0: Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews 10, this morning we are going to be looking at verse 19 through verse 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. What a passage this is. In honor of God's word, I want to invite you to stand with me as we read this passage together. The writer of Hebrews has been pointing us to Christ for well over ten chapters, and, and now we get to the therefore. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience with our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you, Father, for these these three applications of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that you help us to, to approach this this morning. Uh, to see ourselves in this, to ask ourselves the question, uh, how can we uh, apply this? How can we participate in this? How can we be uh, a gospel people that moves beyond simply preaching the gospel week in and week out but Father, people who live the gospel? And so I pray, Lord, that you would uh, fill this place with the Spirit of God, the hearts of the people with the Spirit of God, Give us ears to hear. Lord, give us ears to hear what you are going to say this morning. And then, Father, give us the the strength, the courage, the conviction to respond faithfully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well... Many of you um, here uh, probably still remember Billy Reese. He was our our youth minister prior to to Cherish. He was a a good friend. And uh, several years ago, uh, Billy and I traveled to Chicago to attend the Gospel Coalition Conference. And uh, when we were making our plans and looking at the schedule, we decided that it would be a good idea, uh, idea to, to fly home the next day. Most people were flying out that afternoon. You could tell by the attendance, you know, that most people were starting to check out towards the end. A- and we decided that we were going to stay because according to the schedule, that evening after the conference, there was a post-conference. And it was like, man, Tim Keller is going to speak on urban ministry. And I thought to myself, man, you know, I'm not, I'm, if I'm there, I'm going to listen to everything that, that Tim Keller has to say. So neither of us obviously were doing urban ministry at the time. We were in Burleson, and uh, it's even funnier now when you think of Billy, because he's like in Podunk, Arkansas. And neither of us were were wanting to, to, you know, obviously even think about maybe urban ministry in our future. It's just that we wanted to hear Tim Keller speak. And so what an opportunity. So as we had done all week long, and it's kind of a humorous story, but all week long we had moved ourselves to the front of the auditorium. And I'm talking, when I say an auditorium, all right, picture this times like a thousand. I mean, it's huge, huge, one level seats to go as far as you could see it was, it was amazing thousands of people uh, there to uh, attend this conference and so we would move our way up and we we uh, as we had done all week uh in this this huge auditorium we ended up for this post conference sitting on the front row I mean we were right there in fact we were we were I was like we were right there and Tim Keller was like right there and I I looked over at Billy and I was like, I'm gonna go talk to him. <laughs> and he's like, What are you gonna say? I was like, I have no clue. I have no clue. I didn't want to look like a fanboy, you know, because you know, pastors and such, it's it's kind of not appropriate. And so I just went over to him and I was like, hi. And I had to shake his hand, you know, because it was like, I'm touching Tim Keller. And uh, and he's a big old guy, he's a big man, and and uh I don't even remember what I asked him. It was probably something ridiculous uh, and and totally pointless. Anyway, um, I got to meet him. You know, I was like, Billy, I'm going to go shake his hand, and uh, you take my picture. (laughs) We were doing it. But it was amazing being, you know, that close to to one of my, my personal heroes. Well, after Keller spoke, and he didn't speak very long, I mean, it was like a 20-minute thing. Uh, because this was a, an urban uh, post-conference, it was followed up by a concert. And the the concert was performed by a guy by the name of Lecrae. Uh, he's, he's a Christian rap artist, if you're not familiar. And in fact, there were several uh, rap artists, and Lecrae was kind of the headliner. So... Here we are. Billy and I were on the front row, uh, and, and all of a sudden, I mean, we were like right there, up close to the stage, right. And, and all of a sudden, man, um, I mean, the stage kind of goes—you know—it goes dark, and these lights come on, and this is, it starts smoking, and, and and all of this. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, there's this music, and and you can hear it's like thud and thump, and you can feel it in your chest. And we we're right in the thick of it. I mean, as soon as that happened, something interesting took place. Uh, there was this thing called the rushing of the stage. And so even though we were on the front row, all of a sudden we were jammed in. I mean, we, it's front row, right? You can stretch out your legs. No, you don't sit down and stretch out your legs. You're on your feet. And so all of these people rush the and So now we're in the, in the middle of it. So it turns out there is this, this thing, this phenomenon called a mosh pit. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but, but a mosh pit, there's this other thing called body surfing. Body surfing is when people, you know, just simply are lifted up on everybody's hands and, and moved around. So people are like moving and body surfing. And there's Billy and I in the thick of it, right? 2 Two middle-aged, white, dad bods, the whole nine of works, and, and we look at each other, we're in the midst of this thing, and there's kind of this feeling, uh, we don't belong here. We, we are out of our element right now. Something just is, 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 not, uh, is not kind of our thing, you know what I'm saying? And, and yet it was awesome, I mean, we were enjoying it, and the lyrics to the music were fantastic, but we, we were just, it was kind of unnerving, to be honest. To be in that particular situation. So, after about three songs of this, you know, we kind of decided, we like yelled at each other so we could hear each other. We decided, we need to move. We got to get out of here. And so, what we decided to do is is work our way through the pit, the mosh pit, through the crowd, and, and to find our way far removed from the action. Because from far away from the action, then we could sit, sit, and we could observe without participating. Uh, I think a lot of Christians have the same experience when it comes to drawing near to the presence of God. Not that I'm comparing the two. The reality of the feeling is similar because we know in our hearts that approaching God is, is, well, it puts us out of our, it's not our, our thing, right? We feel like we don't belong here. This is out of my element. And being this close to God puts us, it obviously puts us out of our element. After all, everything about God is God is holy, holy. Holy, everything about him is one to be feared to tremble at he knows everything that i've ever done he knows every thought that i've ever had and so yeah it's a little intimidating approaching god and i have this feeling i better back up i better back way up when it comes to approaching god and it becomes a lot easier to observe from a distance rather than to participate. Getting close to the throne of God, well, that's reserved for, for angels, right? We've read the book of Revelation. That's where the angels are. It's kind of like an angelic mosh pit. And, uh, and yet, instead of body surfing, they're falling on their faces. That's what uh, the prophet Isaiah had experienced. In Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 5, we read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He's high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, these angelic, weird-looking beings. Each had six wings with two. He covered his face. The other two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Isaiah basically says, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I am totally out of my element. This isn't going to end well. He must have thought, how in the world did I end up on the front row of heaven's throne room? This is a really dangerous place to be. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am lost. Uh, These aren't my people. I live among a people who are unclean. But then, this, in verses six through seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Well, uh, the altar obviously is a place of sacrifice, and so there's a lot of symbolism going on here, but through a sacrifice, Isaiah's sin has been atoned for, covered over, unseeable to this holy God. Brothers and sisters, because of that fact that Jesus shed his blood for us on the cross, because he has taken away our sins, because he is our high priest, that's what we're reading here, because all of all this has happened, we, it says, can now approach God on his throne with confidence is that crazy? Confidence. I want you to listen to that word a moment. Confidence. Confidence. Confidence doesn't mean casual. Right? We, we, we don't just kind of still, oh man, I'm so confident. I'm just strolling up to God. No, confidence uh, means not so much that we're casual. We still enter the presence of God with fear and trembling because he's still holy and we're still filled with awe before him, right? But we are are confident because we know that because of his atoning death on our behalf, we are accepted and we are welcomed by this holy God who we now call Father. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... And by the new living way that he has opened up for us, the curtain that is through his flesh, and because we have a high priest over over the house of God, we have confidence. Not in ourselves, we have confidence completely in what Christ has done. We never have to say when coming into the presence of God, I shouldn't belong here. I'm completely out of my element. I have no business being up this close to God. We can draw near, it says, with, with, with confidence. Uh, we can be there. And here's the crazy thing. God wants us to be there. That's the whole reason he sent Jesus to die on our behalf, so that we could be there. Revelation three twenty one says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. No? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and I will eat with him, and he with me, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. What? As I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I'm gonna read that one again because we don't have it up here, and I want you to really hear this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's Jesus, he's knocking on the door, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. And he with me, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. (laughs) And I also, uh, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So in the passage, who is the one who conquers? The one who conquers. Who is the one who conquers? It's the one who opened the door. That's all they did. When Jesus came knocking, they opened the door. And the fact is is that according to the, the Greek passage, they opened the door and they continually opened the door. They're continually opening their, opening their heart to Jesus. They've given Jesus a house key. And they're like, "Just come on in. Live here, come and stay. They didn't do anything heroic. It's like, you know, the one who conquers, you know, and you think like gladiator. The one who conquers. They didn't do anything heroic. They opened a door. That's all we can do. They opened the door to Jesus. And because they opened the door, they opened their heart to him, he opens his throne to them, to us. How cool is that? It says... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Sit with Christ on his throne. Here's Isaiah who's going, Woe is me, I don't belong here. And here's Jesus going, Why don't you join me on my throne? I'm not bow before it. Why don't you sit up here with me? Been like Lecrae going, hey, why don't you come up here? Join me on stage. How odd would that have been? Think about, think about it like this. I, I, I picture this, this scene in my, my head. You know I don't believe it happened, but uh, it's, it's this kind of way my brain works. Uh, uh, imagine if Isaiah, when he was before the throne, could have seen in that moment uh, this reality, right? Imagine he, he's trembling, he's terrified before the throne because it says he's unclean. I, I live among people with unclean lips. And he's sitting there just trembling. He's bowed face down. All of a sudden, somebody nudges you know, past him. And it's like, oh, excuse me. And they walk past him. And he's like, whoa, you better stop, man. You're fixing to get incinerated. And you're like, no, it's okay. And you walk past and you come up to the throne and then you climb up on it. And Isaiah's like that's the scene here. It is so mind-boggling, these truths that are coming out of the book of Hebrews. And sometimes we just kind of read past them and we're like, yeah, okay. And yet they are they explode the mind with imagination and truth about the reality of what Christ has done for us and the access he's given us. Our confidence is not in ourselves. We have zero confidence in ourselves to come before God. We have zero worthiness in and of ourselves, but our confidence is in the blood of Christ. Right? If God were to say to us, what are you doing here? You know, we would simply say, point to Jesus, I'm here with him. He invited me. I belong here. And he would say, yes, you do. The writer of Hebrews has reached the peak of his teachings on the glories and the majesty of Christ. We've been looking at it for, for, well, weeks, over 20 weeks now. And now he finally comes from this point forward to the applications. He's come to three Specifically, the first three, I call them gospel applications because they're applications that are tagged in, tied in with the gospel. Since this, this. Since we are now able to come before Christ with confidence, let us. In fact, he says it three times. Let us do this, let us do this, and let us do this three different things. Well, these are the three gospel applications that I want to look at, and, and because of what Christ has done in order to give us the opportunity to actually do these three things, then we have to look at them at, with, with kind of this urgency to say, we have got to do that. We have got to take advantage of that. Jesus died in order for us to be able to do this. So what are they? What are they? Well, let's look at the first one. Let us draw near to god verse 22 let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water i want you to think about what that means let us draw near jesus has made it possible we can come before him with confidence, and yet we're still told that we have to do it, that we still have to draw near. I will never forget the first time I heard like 6,000 men. It may have been the, the same conference that Billy was, and I were at. Uh, Seeing this, this amazing hymn, it's a newer hymn, uh, called Before the Throne of God Above. I think it's my favorite. I really do. I think it's my favorite. And and the first time I heard it in this particular setting, the first thing that happened is like a lump in my throat, which makes it very difficult to sing. The second thing that happened is the hairs on my arms and the back of my neck started to rise up. And the third thing that happened is tears began to flow, which is stunning for me because I'm, you know, not a big tear guy. And, And yet I was just like, just so... Moved not just simply by the atmosphere, but the atmosphere that we're singing these lyrics before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Verse 2. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. And God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable i am the king of glory and of grace one with himself i cannot die my soul is purchased by his blood my life is hid with christ on high with christ my savior and my god with christ my savior and my god the invitation to draw near to God is, is expressed in this is an invitation to draw near the throne of God and to behold him there. The risen lamb, spotless righteousness. That's why the gospel, I, I think, means good news. Good news, right? It's, it's not called uh, good instructions. It's good news, it's an announcement, it's not a job description. It's a proclamation of something already done, which is why the first thing that we're called to do is simply to draw near, to draw near and to behold. Just look. I think this is the easiest application. That we're going to find out of these three it's the easiest application and, and yet for most of us it really seems to be the hardest uh we we tend to look at ourselves and, and we tend to look at the world way more often than drawing near and looking at god uh, let me show you what i mean with with an illustration i got this illustration from from jared wilson uh, he's written a great book called The Imperfect Disciple. I highly recommend it. And he gives this illustration, right? So so check this out. Without looking, you can't look. No cheating. All right, without looking, do you know the word that is imprinted on a penny to the left side of Abraham Lincoln's profile? Don't yell it out if you know it. But most of you are like, hmm. Okay, you flip it over on the tell site, right? Do you know what's on the tell site? You're like, well, it depends on what year it is. Right? Bill's not here. He would be like, well, spouse and all. Do you know what's there? And don't tell me a Bill, there's a building. Now, what building? What is the building that's there? If you're looking at, you know, kind of the middle range paint. You know, John's not here. John would say, you know, oh, it's wheat. God, save that joke, He's not even here. And so, what building uh, is it? By the way, I learned some interesting uh, things about this uh, particular building. Did you know there's some p- pennies on that particular building. It's the Lincoln uh, Memorial. And on that building, uh, some of those pennies that you have in your pocket, uh, they have what's called a floating roof. So on the building itself, the roof is kind of raised up, and it's not connected to the rest of the building. Some of the pennies in the 70s have that. If you find that, uh, that is worth over 300 times what that penny's worth. That's right, three bucks. But it just kind of, you know, the uh, the whole thing about it is is all of a sudden, you know, I'm finding out these facts and it's like these stupid pennies. I'm like, I don't like investigating the thing. All right, how about this? Uh, This is especially true on the newer pennies. Newer pennies have more of a shield on them, right? There are initials next to that. Little bitty initials. What are they? Whose are they? Anybody know? Anybody have a clue? Well, the initials are FG. And that's right. Now you know. That's for Frank Gasparro. Duh. Frank Gasparro. You're like, okay, in the world is Frank Gasparro. I don't remember that from my history books. Well, he's the guy who's the artist who designed the penny, the, the newer pennies. He's got his name on all these pennies. So here's the point of this. We all know, we're all going, I know what a penny is, right? I know what a penny looks like. We've had them our whole lives. We've had them, you know, they're everywhere. There's like 50 of them on top of your your, your washing machine right now. They're everywhere. And and here's the reality, though, is even though we've had them our whole lives, right, most of us could not answer those questions concerning them because we're going, I'm not really sure. We've never really looked at it. Not really. we are just kind of taking it for granted. Uh, We don't look because we think we know. And here's the thing. The same thing can be said of the gospel. The same thing can be said of Jesus. You hear it week after week. This thing called the gospel. And when you think, man, we know it, we know it. And and sometimes you know it, or you think you know it so well that you stop looking. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, you still have to draw near. You can't just go, cool, we can. We can't. The gospel says we can. I've read theology books that say now we can draw near because of the blood of Christ. I've read so many theology. You can. We can. But are you? Just because we can doesn't mean we are. We still have to look. Psalm 30, or excuse me, 63.2 says, I have seen you in the sanctuary, and I have beheld your power and your glory. I've seen you there. I've beheld you. And what do you see? Power. Power and glory. Beholding Christ helps us to see power. It helps us to see glory instead of uh, uh, just our own power or glory and being impressed with the world's so-called power and glory. Our minds are fixed on Christ. Look. Look. Our, our power doesn't come from behaving, but from beholding from looking. I, I love the story, uh, of one of my favorite Spurgeon stories uh, of a, a custodian, I think it was a custodian that was working at uh, London's Agricultural um, Hall, and Charles Spurgeon was scheduled to speak there at a large auditorium, and uh, he had never spoken there before, a- and so uh, th- obviously this is Spurgeon's day, there's no microphones, there's just no speaker system. Right, It's pure projection. And so Spurgeon uh, decided to test the acoustics of the building uh, before you know, anybody got there. And so this, this guy was cleaning in the auditorium. And so Spurgeon goes out and he, and he goes into the, one of the balconies and he shouts out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Comes through the rafters. He did it again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that custodian, whose name we don't know, heard that word coming down from the rafters and he bent down and he gave his heart to Jesus right there on the spot. That's quite a sermon. That's quite the power of God. That's quite the power of beholding God. The fact of the matter is is that every human, we, every human being, every human being you meet, including yourself, we are all starving for glory. Man, we're starving for glory. We're famished to behold glory. We're famished to, to know something bigger and beyond ourselves. That's why when we go to the Grand Canyon, it's why we make trips to the Grand Canyon, it's why we love certain kinds of music. We're starving for glory because we lost it at the fall. And so we have to look at at big things to increase our capacity to see big things. That's why John Piper uh, said that, that staring into the sky, I read this and I was just like, well, that's interesting. He says, staring at the sky helps us guard against lust. Well, that sounds kind of strange, so I had to read that article, right, clickbait. And so, yeah, I read it, and here's what, what he said. I want you to hear this, because I was like, oh my goodness, that's profound. He said, do you know why there, is no, there are no windows in adult bookstores? Answer, because they don't want people looking out at the sky. The sky is the enemy of lust. I just want you to think back on your struggles. The sky is a great power against lust. Pure, lovely, wholesome, powerful, large-hearted things cannot abide the soul of a sexual fantasy at the same time. I remember as I struggled with these things in my teenage years and in my college years, one way of fighting was simply to get out of the dark places, get out of the lonely rooms, get out of the places where it was just small, me and my mind and my imagination. What can I do with it and get to where I want? I'm surrounded when I'm just surrounded by color and beauty and bigness and loveliness. And I know that when I used to sit in my front yard at 122 Bradley Boulevard with a notepad in my hand and a pen, trying to write a poem. At that moment, my heart and my body were light years away from the sexual fantasizing that I was tempted by again and again in the late night, quiet, secluded, in-house moments. There's something about bigness, something about beauty that helps battle against puny, small, cruddy uses of the mind to fantasize about sexual things. Why did John Piper look at the sky? Well, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. We're hungry for something glorious, something bigger. And when we behold something bigger, it always wins over the puny, the small. And you may be thinking, well, Piper's advice is rather naive, right? Because if that worked, right, everybody would be bumping into each other. We'd all be looking at the sky all the time. But his point is this, beholding bigness and beauty makes these these big sins that seem to capture us become smaller and smaller and smaller by comparison. And here we're invited to draw near to the the biggest, most beautiful glory of all, the battle against sin, the throne of Christ. Hebrews 4.16. By the way, this idea of drawing near to God, this is one that that, that is, is all over the place. It's like seven times he says it in the book of Hebrews. We saw it back in Hebrews 4.16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. I love that. Throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and may find grace in time of need. That's what uh, what the writer of Hebrews has been doing this whole time. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. Christ is better than this. Christ is bigger than this. Over and over again. Now, Now, by comparison, now that you see Christ, let's take a look at the law. Let's put them together which glory do you want? Glory of the gospel triumphs over the glory of the law. It's like when the sun comes up, you look at night and you go, look look at all these stars. And then the sun comes up the next morning and you can't see any of them because the glory of the sun has triumphed. That's what the gospel does to the law. It's exactly what, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, check this out. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that has surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is permanent have glory. Now, what he's saying here is man, the gospel; it, the glory of the gospel overshades, overshines everything else, especially the law. Especially religion. I want you to see the second let us draw near to God. Second, verse 23. Also, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember that Hebrews is written to a people that are on the brink of deconstructing their, their faith for good. And returning back to Judaism. Remember that? And so they're going to return back to a lesser glory. But the call here is to hold fast. It says, hold fast to your confession. How? By not swaying from it, without wavering. What does the confession refer to? Well, it's Romans 10 9. Uh, Makes it clear what our confession is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He's like, there's your confession. Don't, don't move from that. Make that an anchor. Don't move from that. That's To confess that Jesus is Lord, that's not just words. That's not just lip service. It means that you're renouncing everything else as an authority in your life and you're embracing the lordship of Jesus. It means that he alone is now your allegiance, right? So these people are being treated awful because they've said Jesus is our, our Lord now. They're being treated horribly for that. And they're being faced with the temptation of denying Him in order to ease all of the suffering that they're going through. And He says, "Now you've got to hold fast. You've got to hold fast. Don't waver. Don't waver." The word "waver"ing means to be unmoved, fixed, and resolute. Week before last, uh, Tom Troxel came over graciously to help me build a new fence. After my old one had been knocked down by the storm, we had those 80 mile an hour winds, my fence didn't hold up. And uh, what, what that uh, entailed is that we had to dig up the old fence posts, because the old fence posts had broken at the ground. What remained was the concrete base below the ground, which is where we needed to put some new posts. And so we had to, to, uh, to dig that up had to break it up and, and dig it up. And uh, on top of that, in my particular yard, and my, I guess, the whole neighborhood, I have the worst soil on the planet. My soil is is 90% rock. I mean, you kink, kink. You go two inches below the surface of the ground, you're going to hit rock. Uh, I challenge you to take a shovel anywhere in my yard and, and not hit a rock doing that. And so we're digging, and you, you got to dig about two and a half feet, a two and a half foot hole into the ground. It was about the same as going out into the middle of the street and digging a hole. That's basically what we were up against. And man, it was, it was so hard. And here's what we discovered in doing this, that the original builders of that fence, they were like going, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so, man. As long as the thing's standing uh, when we get out of here, we're good. I mean, you know, they went like about, you know, maybe a foot. No wonder when the storm came, man, didn't last. Poor building methods, poor building materials. And so Tom and I, we had to, to, to stand out there, spend an entire day digging what, five, or six holes uh, in, in this rocky soil. And it was, it was, it was miserable. It was tough. We, we hammered. We pried. Uh, we, we rented an auger. And we were like both trying to do it because it kept hitting rocks and spinning us around. Uh, Tom nearly broke a wrist. It, it was a lot of fun. We battled the ground for every single inch of depth. Every inch we battled for. But We finally did it. And we set those posts. And we used metal posts. And now those posts, I I truly believe this, and we haven't fully had them tested yet, but I believe they will be unwavering in a storm because they're fixed. And that's the same thing you have to do when it comes to the gospel because you have a lot of things in this world, a lot of struggles that are coming at you from so many different ways, and you have to continue to persevere and to dig deep and to dig deep with Christ, and when you go, you'll discover it's not necessarily all that easy, and you keep running into obstacles and things trying to pull you away from spending your time and drawing near to God, and you just constantly have to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it and and draw deeper and deeper and deeper. And what's happening in our culture right now is there a storm that is blowing through America, and so many of these churchgoers who were an inch deep, are being blown away. And they're going, I don't believe anymore. Too costly. I'm going to deconstruct everything. That's what's happening in in record numbers. You have to dig deep. And we have to dig deep, not only for our own faith and the confession of our own faith, we have to dig deep for generations. For our kids, for our grandkids, for the community, uh, Robert Murray McShane said this. I love this quote. He said, "A Christian is someone who makes it easy for other people to believe." Not great, right? How do we make it easier for other people to believe if we're drifting and wishy-washy about our confession? Amen. We have to draw near. We have to hold fast to our confession. And the last one I want you to see, the third gospel application, is we got to stir one another up. Oh boy. Now what I'm going to say is going to sound really odd and and rather countercultural, which uh, is part of the problem. Because I'm going to say some things, and they're going to sound very countercultural, but it's not that they're countercultural in the society which they are. It's going to sound countercultural in the church, which is a problem. How we drifted so far that scripture sounds like nobody can do that. Verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here's the thing, scripture makes it clear that when we draw near to God, we will automatically draw near to our brothers and sisters in Christ as well, our fellow man uh, alongside of that. Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these brothers, you've done it unto me. There's such a connection between us as a family and our relationship with Christ that it's how we treat one another is how we treat Jesus. That's how close they're linked. The, the, the church is called a body, the body of Christ. right? We're, we are Christ's arms and legs and feet in the world. John says it's impossible to love Jesus and not love his church. Can't do it. It doesn't even make sense. It's like saying, you know, I, I, I love you, but I don't love your physical presence. I don't love your body But I love you. Well, it's ridiculous. You are you. You are you embodied. And so to say I don't love, I love Christ, but not the body of Christ, that doesn't make any sense. So that sentiment is expressed in the word consider. And let us consider. The Greek word translated here is consider. It's really hard to convert it into English. There's not really an equivalent. But we used it. It was used back in Hebrews 3.1 when we were told there, same word, consider Jesus. So, Hebrew 3.1, consider Jesus. Here we're to consider one another. Same word. We saw back then that that word meant to look intently at, to look, to think about, to let your mind be occupied with. Jesus, and now we're called to do the same thing towards one another. The passage literally says, consider one another in order to stir up. It doesn't say, I mean, the translation is, let's, let's consider how to stir up. No, it says, consider one another and then stir up. That's what the passage says. This is God's call for us to consider one another, to look at one another, to think about one another, to focus on one another to study one another to let our mind be occupied with one another the goal of this focus on others is to think of ways to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds uh, this, this by the way isn't rent to just church leaders consider one another What's, who's that? everyone right? It's written to everyone. Everyone is responsible to everyone. We're all responsible for one another. One another includes all of us, right? We're to stir up one another, which means we're also part of one another. So we're to receive being stirred up as well as to stir up. You with me? So the idea here is basically this. Look, this is what we say to one another. Look, uh, Jesus has saved you, right? Jesus saved you. So that means that you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, which means the Spirit of God has, has given you certain gifts and equipped you to serve Him and to serve this body in love. Don't waste that. Don't waste that. Right? We need you. We need you. You're a part of this body. Uh, we need every part of the body working for the glory of God. There's so much mess going on in our our society right now and in our culture, and the church is is copying that reality. Everybody's divided. We're politically divided. And the church is in the same boat. We've allowed politics into the the body, not the kingdom politics, but nationalism. Think about how dumb that is, right? Right? We're like going, well, you know, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be on conservative. You have to be on the right. And there are other people, progressive Christians, that are going, well, actually, no. If you want to be a Christian, you'd have to be on the left. Well, let me ask you this. When you look at the body of Christ, which side do you want, right or left? I want the whole thing. And we're called to be the whole thing. How ridiculous is it to say we're going to be half a body of Christ? Oh, my goodness. We have allowed the world to dictate to the church. So the idea here is, look, man, look, we need everyone. There's a genuine responsibility that we have for one another. When you become a follower of Jesus, right, you commit yourselves, you put yourselves into that arena of responsibility, right? Uh, it's so different than the church today. Today, the, the church is consumed with a, a consumerism. We have a consumeristic mindset that marks so many Christians in churches today. Man, people say things, you get in conversations with people, and you're like, oh, you go to church? Yeah, I don't. Oh, my goodness, yeah, I just love my church. They have so many wonderful programs for the kids, they, they even have an indoor uh, playground. Right, my kids can go from one end of the building to the next on a giant slide. They have a movie theater. I can drop my kids off and I can grab a latte at the at the Holy Grounds Cafe before I go to Jazzercise for Jesus class. You know what? That's fine. You know that that's all great. As long as as long as at the same time you are linked together with other believers where there is mutual accountability to love and good works. Well man, let's be honest, right? Most church-going consumers are are, are offended by that. Offended by the whole thought of that. (laughs) This word to stir up. Stir one another up. In the Greek text, it, it literally means to jab, to provoke. I, I call it jabbing for Jesus, right? We got a whole new church motto, jabbing for Jesus. But, but most people today, man, you start jabbing them for Jesus, and they're like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here, Right? People are offended, too, too easily offended to be jabbed for Jesus. People want to be coddled, not challenged, pampered, not prodded. And, and, and yet, and yet, I just, I just want to say, man, how is being a consumer Christian going to serve you when you stand, when you draw near to God, especially on that last day, when you draw near God on the judgment seat of Christ? And you have to give an account for what you did with your spiritual gifts and your resources and your opportunities. You're going to look back and go, man, I wish somebody would have jabbed me. And so jabbing one another for Jesus is is an act of love. It's to be done in love. We've lost this in the church. Jesus said, in the last days, the love of most will grow cold. That's why we're to keep encouraging one another to be, not to be molded by the patterns of this world. Jesus said that the world will know that you are my disciples, how? If you love one another. The the primary fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And so we're, we're basically not stirring one another up to act more loving. We're stirring, we're jabbing one another to be what we already are in Christ. Which is loving. The other part of the assignment, this is, this is an interesting one, is to look, look after one another's steadfastness. Some people in the church have gone MIA. Right? They've stopped showing up at the Assembly of the Saints. And, and it's become habitual. Because it does. That's what happens. The Greek, word, the Greek word for habitual is a very familiar one. This is fascinating to me. The Greek word for habitual in the text is the word ethos. Ethos. What's an ethos? Right? Every church has one. Every church has, a, has an ethos. ethos. Uh, it's, it's a feel, right? It's a, it's a kind of a cultural spirit It's an unspoken way of being that's just simply in the air. It's a feel. Some churches, uh, the feel is just kind of lackadaisical, half-hearted. Other churches, there's a joyful expectation. It's just in the air. It's hard to define. It's hard to pin down. You can't program it. It, it. You just feel it. You just know it. It works its way through the whole church like yeast through bread. Everything we do, everything that we do is based on habits and and rhythms. And those things in in turn are based on what we love and what we desire. And those habits corporately form an, an ethos. The ethos reflects our loves, what we love. The old song, right? The old song, Love is in the Air. Love is in the Air. Right? It's such a cheesy song, but it's truer than we know. Right? It's kind of a, an ethos in the air. The message here is build an ethos of love and good deeds and faithfulness. Just kind of in the air. Right? Don't build an ethos that says, church, I can take it or leave it. Right? Right? I'll check in every now and then if, if uh, you know, nothing better comes up. Which nobody would ever say that, but that's the ethos that so many people have. I mean, the, nothing better on Sunday morning is going to come up. Ever. I'm not saying, you know, that... that that you might, you know, miss a Sunday every now and then. I'm not trying to be legalistic about it. I'm just saying that there's nothing better and more important than worshiping God with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If, if we could see our worship from heaven's perspective, if we could see that we are worshiping and we're joined angels in heaven around the very throne of Christ. If we could see that, if we could perceive that, then I don't think that anything else that we think is more glorious than that would be quite so appealing anymore. Nothing's better. Our problem is a lack of holy imagination. that builds an, an ethos that says when we come, this is the most important thing I'm going to do this week right here. When God asked Cain the question of where his brother was, remember that? Remember his answer? Am I my brother's keeper? Hebrews answers the question with yes, yes. You are your brother's keeper and your sister's keeper. If God says, where are they? You say, I'll tell you where they are because I know where they are. Man, that's a whole different kind of community than a, a quarterly potluck. Uh, th- this is relational, it's vulnerable, it's challenging, it's humble. It, re- it requires a willingness to be jabbed, to be stirred up without taking offense, right? It, it, that's a maturity level. In, in, in this divided cancel culture, it is radically different. But in this consumer Christian culture, it's radically different. Only by abiding in Christ are we able to do that, produce the fruit of love. Otherwise, we will, if you try to do this in the flesh, right, you're gonna just end up being a judgmental jerk about it, and, and then you'll end up driving people further away. Right? People walk in the door, you haven't seen it in a long time, and you're like, whoa, look at who the cat drug in today. Where have you been? I thought you'd gone to a different church, <laughs> you know? And, and, and you know what you just did? You just drove them to the different church next week. Don't assume this, right? If we're going to stir up one another to love, you can't stir up people to love by being unloving. It doesn't make any sense. So we, we can't assume that because people are MIA, you know, you just go, oh, they're. They've fallen away. They're lazy. They're just unspiritual. They're just too busy. No, have you ever thought that maybe they're struggling with depre- maybe they're just struggling with depression? Maybe getting out of bed is a victory for them. Maybe they have incredible anxiety. There's a lot of people that have social anxiety. They come into church is, is a challenge. Maybe people have been hurt and broken in the past by someone in the church. And the only way you're going to know that is to reach out and find out. Guilt trips are the worst possible motivational tactic that you can come up with, with your kids, with anybody. But here's the motive. We are to do this, it says, all the more as you see the day drawing near." The day is a reference to the second coming of Christ. The day is the the final day of life in this fallen planet. It's drawing near. Do you see the the wordplay here in the text? Right, As the day draws near. Here's, Here's basically what he's saying. The writer is saying, draw near to God and then draw near to one another because the last day is drawing near. I love that. I know it sometimes uh, doesn't feel like it. And it, sometimes you just go, I don't know. The world just keeps spinning. Every day it comes up and it's a little worse. Every single day it just seems. And yet the world is on a time sc- scale and it's ticking down. It's the sand through the hourglass is nearly siphoned all the way through. I really believe that. And just an inch more of time and then all eternity begins. So shouldn't that produce in us a sense of urgency? The idea here is going, man. This times are urgent. We need to stir up one another. We need to, we need to be loving. We need to be doing good deeds. We need to be faithful to our church. We need to be doing all these things because any day, any day, Jesus may return. And I want to be found faithful. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Boy, I want him to find it in us. In all of us. So we must be urgent towards our brothers and sisters who have drifted away in love. We must be urgent towards the lost because once Christ comes, that's it. Our Lord's coming soon. And so we need to take these gospel applications to heart. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you've given us these these things. Lord, these these let us us participate. They're, They're not given to us like harsh commands. They're given to us like invitations given to us like since Jesus has done this, then let us take full of advantage of everything that he's done for us, everything that he bought with us, for us with his blood. Let us do these things because he's given them to us. Let us draw near to God because we can now. Let Let us hold fast to our confession Because there's no other confession that even begins to to outshine the truth of Jesus. Let us stir up one another because we're on the winning side and Christ is coming soon. And so help us to, to be fully present with Christ alive in this world. Let us take the church as not a Sunday option but is our lifeline. The clock's ticking. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for your word. We thank you, Father, for these invitations uh, to, to join, to participate with you in these things. I pray, Father, that we would look at, uh, at them and then look at our lives and, and question ourselves. Uh, allow the Spirit to intervene and, and examine our hearts Are we taking full advantage of drawing near to you? Every day, carving out time to draw near. Are we holding fast and strong without wavering to that confession we made however many years ago it is for some of us? Are we still as passionate now as we were then? Are we so connected to one another that we're able to stir one another up, that someone's able to stir us up without us taking offense at that and and actually not seeing it as a defendable act but an act of love? Are we able to actually do it as an act of love? So many things uh, at, at play here, and I pray Holy Spirit apply to each of us the things that apply most to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.